wonderful group of speakers. Um, it's an honor to be with all of you, sincerely. Could we have the first image, please? You know, one of, um, one of the intense pleasures of travel, as I'm sure many of you have experienced, is the opportunity to live amongst those who have not forgotten the old ways, who still feel their past in the wind, touch it in stones polished by rain, taste it in the bitter leaves of plants. And just to know that in the Amazon, jaguar shamans still journey beyond the Milky Way, or that in the high Arctic, the myths of the Inuit elders still resonate with meaning, or that in the high Himalaya, the Buddhists still pursue the breath of the Dharma, is to remember the central revelation of anthropology, and that is the idea that the world into which you were born doesn't exist in some absolute sense, but it's just one model of reality, the consequence of one particular set of adaptive choices that your lineage took, however successfully, many generations ago. But whether it is a voodoo acolyte in Haiti, a yak herder in the slopes of Shomalungma, an eagle hunter of central Kazakhstan, or a thunderhoof shaman of Mongolia, all of these peoples teach us that there are other ways of being, other ways of thinking, other ways of orienting yourself in social, ecological, spiritual space. And that's an idea that, if you think about it, can only fill you with hope. Now, together, the myriad of peoples of the world make up a cultural web of life that envelops the planet and is as important to the well-being of the planet as is the biological web of life that you know so well as a biosphere. And you could think of this cultural web of life as being an ethnosphere, and you could define the ethnosphere as being the sum total of all thoughts and dreams, ideas and intuitions, myths and memories brought into being by the human imagination since the dawn of consciousness. The ethnosphere is humanity's great legacy. It's a symbol of all that we've achieved and the promise of all that we can achieve as a wildly creative species. But just as the biosphere is being severely eroded, so too is the ethnosphere, but if anything, at a far greater rate. No biologist, for example, would dare suggest that 50% of all plant and animal species are moribund, and yet that, the most apocalyptic scenario in the realm of biological diversity, scarcely approaches what we know to be the most optimistic scenario in the realm of cultural diversity. And the great indicator of that, of course, is language loss. When each of you were born, there were 7,000 languages spoken on Earth. Now, language is a flash of the human spirit. It's the vehicle through which the soul of every culture comes in the material world. Every language is an old-growth forest of the mind, a watershed of thought, an ecosystem of social and spiritual possibilities. And of those 7,000 languages spoken the day that you were born, by absolute academic consensus, fully half aren't being whispered into the ears of infants. They're on the way to extinction. Now, there are many people who say, wouldn't, wouldn't the world be a better place if we all spoke one language? Wouldn't communication be facilitated? My answer to that is always to say, what a great idea. But let's make that universal language a nuptatak. Let's make it haida, yorba, and you suddenly begin to feel, as a native speaker of English, what it would be like to be enveloped in silence, to have no means or ability to pass on the wisdom of your ancestry or to anticipate the promise of your descendants. And yet that fate is the plight of somebody somewhere on Earth every fortnight. And so we're literally living through a time when, by definition, half of humanity's spiritual, intellectual, and cultural knowledge is at risk. And the poignant thing about that is it's also occurring in the very same 
generation in which geneticists have finally proven it to be true, something philosophers have always hoped to be true, and that is the fact that we're all brothers and sisters. And I don't mean that in the spirit of hippie ethnography. I mean, quite literally, geneticists have shown that the human genetic endowment is a continuum. Race is an utter fiction. We are all cut from the same genetic cloth. Indeed, we are all descendants of a handful of people who walked out of Africa some 65,000 years ago and embarked on this extraordinary hegira, 2,500 human generations that carried the human spirit to every corner of the habitable world. But here's the important point. If we're all cut from the same genetic cloth, we all share, by definition, the same genius. And whether that genius is invested into technological wizardry, our great achievement, or by contrast, put into the challenge of unraveling the mystic threads of memory inherent in a myth, is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. There is no hierarchy in the affairs of culture. That old 19th century idea that we somehow went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand of London has been utterly ridiculed by modern science, shown to be as much a colonial conceit as the idea of clergymen in the 19th century that the earth was but 6,000 years old. So in the stunning affirmation of the human spirit, genetics has come to the fore to prove the validity of the central core tenet of social anthropology, which is cultural relativism. And what this means is that the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being you. They're not failed attempts at being modern. Every culture, by definition, is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? When the peoples of the world answer that question, they do so in 7,000 different voices. And those voices collectively become our human repertoire for dealing with the challenges that will confront us in the coming centuries. Every culture has something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. The challenge becomes, what do you do about it? You know, if you're a biologist and you identify an area of high species endemism, you seek to create a protected area. But you can't make a rainforest park of the mind. Change is the one constant of human experience. All cultures everywhere are always dancing with new possibilities for life. So almost 20 years ago, when I was recruited to the National Geographic with the explicit mission of trying to change the way the world viewed and valued culture in a decade, I realized that polemics were never persuasive. Politicians follow but never lead, but storytellers can change the world. So I embarked, in a way, into the ethnosphere to try to bring our global audience into direct encounter with societies whose structures, beliefs, intuitions were so inherently dazzling that you couldn't help but come away with a new appreciation of the wonder of culture. So, for example, I sailed in the Hokulea with the Polynesian Voyaging Society, sailors who even today can name 250 stars in the night sky. They can sense the presence of distant atolls of islands beyond the visible horizon simply by watching the reverberation of waves across the hull of the vessel, knowing full well that every island group in the Pacific has its own unique refractive pattern that can be read with the perspicacity with which a forensic scientist would read a fingerprint. These are sailors who can distinguish as many as five different sea swells moving through the sacred canoe, distinguishing those caused by local weather patterns from the deep currents that pulsate across the Pacific and can be followed with the ease with which a terrestrial explorer 
would follow a river to the sea. Indeed, if you took all of the genius that allowed us to put a man on the moon and applied it to an understanding of the ocean, what you would get is Polynesia. And now if we slip into the greatest forest, we enter the Amazon, a rainforest the size of the face of the full moon. And we come into the homeland of the people of the Anaconda who cognitively do not distinguish the color blue from the color green because the canopy of the heavens is equated to the canopy of the rainforest. Societies that have extraordinary complex social structures that facilitate not conflict but peace and trade, not the least of which is a marriage rule that says you must marry someone who speaks a different language. And so in every longhouse, you have six and seven languages spoken, but you never hear a child practicing a distinct tongue. They simply wait, listen, watch, and one day begin to speak. And the more we understand about the depth of their cosmologies and mythologies, we've come to understand that those belief systems amount to nothing more or less than a complex land management plan that dictates with incredible specificity how people could live in their millions in the northwest Amazon. Now, if we move from the Amazon into the Andes and begin to embrace notions of sacred geography, now what do I mean by that? You and I were raised to believe that a mountain is a pile of rock ready to be mined. That makes us very different than my godchildren raised to believe that a mountain is an apu deity that will direct their destiny. It's not who's right and who's wrong. The interesting point is the metaphor that defines the ecological footprint of the particular culture. In the Andes, everything is based on reciprocity, a conscious idea that as human beings take from the bounty of the earth, they have an obligation to give back. And they give back through rituals, like the mojimiento, where once each year, the fastest young lad in every hamlet in this community is given the honor of becoming a woman. And he puts on the traje of his mother, and he carries all able-bodied men behind him with the banners of the community. You begin at 11,500 feet, you run down 3,000 feet, and then you run to 16,000 feet, soar, come down into the sacred valley, cross two more soaring Andean ridges over a 24-hour race, which is less race than ritual, and the metaphor is so beautiful. You go into the mountain as an individual, but through sacrifice, and of course sacrifice from Latin means to make sacred, you emerge as a single community that has once again reaffirmed your sense of belonging on the planet. I did this race at the age of 48, the oldest and only outsider, and I only got through the 24-hour ordeal by chewing more coca leaves than anyone has chewed in the 4,000-year history of the plant. <laughs> but these regional events become Pan-Andean in these sacred events like the Coeriti, thousands of indigenous people converging on a sacred valley, bringing the crosses from their communities in the shadow of Ausangati, the most sacred mountain of the Inca, or here in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, the complex of societies that in the bloodstained continent were never conquered by the Spanish, the elder brothers, the Wiwa, Canquano, Kogi, and Aurocos, to this day ruled by a ritual priesthood, but the training for the priesthood is extraordinary. The acolytes are taken away from their families at the age of two and three, sequestered in a shadowy world of darkness as they learn the Baroque religiosity which maintains that their prayers and rituals literally maintain the cosmic balance of the world. And for 18 years, the world only exists as an abstraction as they take on this obligation. And then suddenly one day, they see a sunrise for the first time. 
At the age of 20, they walk on God's earth for the first time. And the priest who has trained them says, you see, it's as I've told you, it's that beautiful, it's yours to protect. They call themselves the elder brothers and they dismiss us as the younger brothers who they claim have ruined the world. Now we begin to think of these different ways of thinking. We slip into the deserts of Australia. And here we meet a people who had no interest in change whatsoever, which is exactly why they so deeply offended the British, who in their inimitable ways simply began to shoot them. And in fact, as recently as 1902, it was debated in Parliament in Melbourne, Australia, as to whether or not Aboriginal people were human beings or not. In fact, all that was going on was a devotional philosophy beyond the reach of the colonists, and that was a dreaming. And the dreaming wasn't a dream. It was the idea that the world around you both exists and is constantly waiting to be born in the realm of the ancestors. It wasn't that these people had no interest or ability to change, they had no interest in change. There was a civilization of stasis. The entire purpose of life in Australia wasn't to change anything, but rather to do the ritual gestures deemed to be necessary to keep the world exactly as it had been at the time of the Rainbow Serpent. It would be as if all of Western intellectual conviction had been focused on pruning the shrubs in the Garden of Eden to keep it just as it was when Adam and Eve had their fateful conversation. Now, I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. Had we followed that devotional trajectory, we would not have put a man on the moon. But on the other hand, we wouldn't be talking about climate change and our capacity to transform the biophysical support systems of the earth. So we have this idea that these cultures, quaint and colorful, are destined to fade away as if by natural laws. If they're failed attempts at being modern, nothing could be further from the truth. Technology is never a threat to culture. Change is never a threat to culture. What is a threat to culture is power. In every case, these are not fragile societies. They're dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. And that's actually an optimistic observation because if human beings are the agents of cultural destruction, we surely can be the facilitators of cultural survival. If we slip for a moment into the homeland of the last nomadic people of Sarawak, who suffered the highest rate of deforestation ever in the history of humanity, within a single generation, a way of life morally inspired, inherently right, was crushed along with the forest that gave it birth. These are nomadic peoples. There is no word for thank you in their language. Sharing is an automatic reflex. I once gave a cigarette to an old woman and watched as she tore it apart to distribute the individual strands of tobacco equitably in the encampment, rendering the product useless, honoring her obligation to share. And now their homeland has been reduced to rubble. The once clear rivers run so thick with silt that it seems as if half of Borneo is slipping away to the South China Sea. But if crude industrial intrusions are one affliction, ideology is the worst, be it the ubiquitous cult of modernity or the Marxist madness of Beijing. If we slip for a moment into Tibet, where I spend a great deal of time, what was it that obsessed Mao Zedong, the man incidentally responsible for the murder of more of his own people in his lifetime than Hitler and Stalin? put together. When he whispered in the ears of a young Dalai Lama that all religion was poison, the Tibetans knew what was coming. And when the jackboot of the Chinese finally reached Lhasa in 1959, 1.2 million people would be murdered for their religious faith, 6,000 sacred temples destroyed to dust. And what was it about the Dharma? All life is suffering. By that, the Buddha didn't mean that all life was negation. He meant that shit happens. 
The second of the noble truths was simply the, the idea that the cause of suffering is ignorance. By that, the Buddha didn't mean stupidity. He meant the tendency of human beings to cling to the cruel illusion of our own centrality in the stream of divine existence. The third of the noble truths was a revelation that ignorance could be overcome. And the fourth and most significant was a delineation of a contemplative practice that if followed not only had a possibility of a transformation of the human heart, but had 2,500 years of empirical evidence that such a transformation would indeed occur. I made a film called The Buddhist Science of the Mind where I traveled with the Tibetan Amshi doctor as part of his seven years of medical training, spent one full year in solitary retreat in this cave. With us was Mathieu Ricard, the legendary photographer, philosopher, translator of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. We went because we wanted to meet this woman who had been living in lifelong retreat for 45 years. This photograph was taken at the instant that light fell upon her face for the first time in all of those years. By the terms of reference of our society, she should have been mad. Instead, her face radiated loving compassion. And a lama who was there said, said to me, don't you understand, this is the proof of the efficacy of the science of the mind that is Tibetan Buddhism, the serenity achieved by the practitioner. And later a lama at a nearby monastery said to me, you know, we in Tibet don't believe that you went to the moon, but you did. You may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, but we do. And the Buddhists chart their future on the Diamond Sutra, the idea that Life is like a candle in the wind, the sun at dawn fading into the day. And they leave it to us to ask why we continue to accept the jackboot of China on the neck of this civilization that has given so much to the world. Societies like the Inuit, once dismissed as savages, even as they accepted the British as gods, both were wrong have come to terms with culture in the middle of an incredible cultural revival. What the British failed to understand about the Inuit was that there could be no better measure of genius than the ability to survive in an environment where everything has to be forged by the cold. The Inuit didn't fear the cold, they took advantage of it. The runners of their sleds were made of fish. Their sleds were made of meat. The great thing about an Inuk sled is that if you ran out of food, you could always eat your sled. This is a photograph I took 250 miles out on the sea ice near Igluluk in the central Canadian Arctic. That night, the temperature dropped to minus 65 Celsius. And incidentally, this is where cultural anthropology was born. Franz Boas, a physicist, up there realizing how helpless he was in an environment where they were so qualified. And that's when he realized everything we now know to be anthropology. So in the end, we have to ask the question, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in? A monochromatic world of monotony, or do you want to celebrate a polychromatic world of diversity? Margaret Mead said before she died that her greatest fear was that as we drifted toward this blandly amorphous culture, not only would the entire range of the human imagination be reduced to a more narrow modality of thought, but we'd wake one day as from a dream, having forgotten what once existed. All of this matters not because of human rights, certainly not because of nostalgia, 
but because of geopolitical survival and stability, culture is not trivial, culture is not decorative. Culture is the body of moral and ethical values that every society wraps around each individual to keep at bay the barbaric heart that history teaches us lies within all of us. It is culture that allows us to make sense out of sensation, find order and meaning in the universe, to do what Lincoln said, always seek the better angels of our nature. And when you want, if you want to know what happens when culture is lost and people lose those constraints, you simply have to look around the world at the points of horror around the planet. We're not talking about the traditional versus the modern. It's about the rights of free people to choose the components of their lives. It's not an act of nostalgia. It's about asking what kind of world are we going to live in and how do we find ways that all human beings can benefit from the genius of modernity without that engagement demanding the death of their ethnicity. Because in the end, we need the prayers of these young Tibetan monks, just like we need the wayfinding of the Polynesians. And all these multiple skill sets of the spirit, the body, the heart, and the soul expressed by the cultures around the world, because together, they become our collective geography of hope. Thanks very much. Thank you.